A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. And I said, oh, that's the eclair I told you I baked. And he goes, oh. And he took a bite, and then he just grunted. And I was so, so angry. And um, then I went back to clear up his table. He'd eaten the whole thing. This man never ate anything. He ate like a bird. But he'd eaten the entire eclair. And to me, that was the greatest compliment. That was David Leet. He's author of the celebrated blog Leet's Culinaria and most recently an autobiography entitled Notes on a Banana. I'll be speaking with David later in the show. First, it's time to head into the kitchen. We'll check in with Milk Street recipe developer Lynn Clark about this week's recipe for rye chocolate chip cookies. Hey, Lynn, how are you? Good. You know, I was in uh, London a few months ago, and I was at Claire Patak's Bakery. Uh, it's in the east end of London, the Violet Bakery. She used to be the pastry chef at Chez Panisse. And she was making an apricot upside-down cake, but she made it with rye flour. And rye, as you know, has got a slight bitterness to it, and it has more flavor than all-purpose. So I thought uh, I would steal that idea 
of course, uh, and apply it to the chocolate chip cookie using some rye flour to offset all the sweetness in the chocolate chip cookie. And uh, so we brought it back here, and what happened? So we decided to use one cup of rye flour to seven-eighths of a cup of all-purpose flour. That gave us the right texture for the cookie while still getting some of that rye flavor. But we wanted to boost some of the flavor of the rye flour, so we toasted it in a dry skillet. You just take the flour and dry skillet, let it cook until it gets to be the color of peanut butter. It starts to smell really nutty. To that, we added uh, some butter. The butter is cold. It immediately melts in the hot pan. And it, what it does is cool down that flour mixture, which is sort of the texture of a roux, so that we can very quickly add it to the sugar, vanilla, and molasses that we mix together, just like a typical chocolate chip cookie. And two eggs, of course. Yes, of course. And, and chocolate. <laughs> and actually a lot of chocolate. We add a cup and a half of chopped bittersweet chocolate or bittersweet chips you can use. You mix it all together just like you would any chocolate chip cookie recipe. Drop it by two tablespoons onto a cookie sheet lined with parchment. Uh, it bakes in the oven for eight to 12 minutes. You wanna t rotate your tray halfway through. And it's really important to err on the side of under baking these cookies. They really firm up when you take them out. So they're gonna sit on the sheet tray for about five minutes before you transfer them to a cooling rack. You wanna just poke at the edge of the cookie just to make sure it's firm and then pull them out. They'll still be pretty soft in the center, but they're gonna firm up a lot on the I sheet mean, tray. They, they're gonna look totally uncooked at the center. Really. <laughs> exactly. It looks like just like yeah. batter. Right. Exactly. Okay. But don't overbake them. I just have to say how good these are because we were testing these for a month and I must have eaten 30 or 40 of them. <laughs> I mean, these are really good. Slightly bitter, sweet, but a more complex sort of grown up flavor. So great job. Thanks, Chris. You can find this week's recipe for rye chocolate chip cookies at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. All of our shows are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Chris. Hi, Chris. How can I help you? I happen to be listening to your show, and I uh, heard you mention something about a pancake recipe that you've had for 30 years. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that with me. Yeah, it's a recipe I've made 500 times, see if I can remember it. It's two cups of flour. All-purpose flour. All-purpose flour, half a teaspoon of baking soda. Um, I don't use baking powder. Half a teaspoon of salt and two eggs separated and a cup and three quarters of buttermilk, I think, mixed in with the eggs. So I take the flour and the baking soda and the salt and whisk it in a separate bowl, the two egg yolks with the buttermilk, whisk those, and then I whisk the two egg whites separately. And then I pour the liquid into the dry, half fold it gently, then add the egg whites. And by the way, I would put in a tablespoon or so of sugar into the whites as you beat them and underbeat them and then fold them in gently and then you're good to go. When you say underbeat them, you mean like soft peaks? Very soft peaks. Just they look like commas at the end of a whisk. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You don't want a stiff peak. Okay. What was the tablespoon? I'm sorry. Tablespoon or two of sugar in with sugar, the two egg okay. whites. Yeah, because when you use sugar, it, it makes egg whites softer and they're yes. more stable. And underbeat oh, okay. them. You can underbeat them. So they're just barely hold any kind of peak at all. Then pour the liquid into the dry, add the egg whites when they're you're half mixed, and then gently, gently fold the egg whites in. And don't fold them in all the way. They're just not quite folded in all the way. And then uh, 
There you go. And then butter or oil to cook them in. Oh, no. Then I, sorry, I forgot that. Then uh, I think two or three tablespoons of melted butter in with the eggs and the buttermilk. Oh, I wasn't even going there. I meant, what do you cook it on? on this? I just on... use a spray. You I do? spray the electric griddle. Oh. And then just wipe it on down. Oh. So it's, it's oh, great. two eggs, cup and three-quarter buttermilk, three tablespoons of melted butter, two cups of flour, half a teaspoon of baking powder, half a teaspoon of salt, and then the two egg whites. Regular salt? Half a teaspoon of table salt. Yeah. Table salt. Yeah. Okay. There you go. All right. Well, perfect. Yay. Hopefully I remembered it. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. Thanks, thank Chris. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Hi. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? David Sheriff. Hi, David. What can we do for you? I have a question about actually growing vegetables. Okay. I have a backyard which unfortunately has a great deal of shade. And I'm concerned that being able to grow vegetables in a yard where there is considerable shade, meaning maybe an hour or two at the most of morning sunshine, is about all I can get on the area that I like to plant vegetables. So I was wondering if you might have some ideas on what kind of vegetables can one grow with limited sunlight. That's <laughs> that's limited. <laughs> you know what you do? Look in a seed catalog and just buy the seeds that are supposed to be planted very early spring, which means all salads, leafy greens, uh, beets, that kind of thing, because they go into the ground before the sun is strong, and those will do fine. But anything that goes into the ground, like in June or July, forget about it. I mean, tomatoes just aren't going to happen. That's one thing. As a city kid, I know about tomatoes. But but I would say all greens, herbs are fine, beets are fine, maybe broccoli is okay. But anything that goes in the ground early, just after the thaw, is something that will probably do better. But that you really, it's only Uh an hour or two of direct sunlight. Is that all you have? That's about it. That's rough. In the morning That's tough. Yeah, that's kind of tough. I would say herbs and lettuce are the two things that would probably And that's fun. Do I well. mean, it's fresh. Do you have any suggestions on which seed companies are ones that would be good to contact with? What's that wonderful catalog? Seed Savers? It Burpees? started years ago, and it had all those great seeds that were collecting before they couldn't get them anymore. Seeds of Change, is that it? Oh, is that it? That's I why that's I said it. Seed Savers. I think it's, it's Seeds of Change. Yeah. But yeah, some of those are interesting because they have varieties you can't normally get hold of. But very often, if there's a local greenhouse that sells the small plants, that's actually a great, great. way to get started. Yeah, jumpstart too. For years, I used to go down to the greenhouse and give them my seeds, and they would start flats for me. I just paid them to start uh-huh. flats in the greenhouse, and then I would have my own seeds started, and then I transplant them. Wow! And, and they wouldn't, you know, they were friends. They wouldn't charge me very much. Wow! And, and no Everybody matter who they needs a friend like that. Well, I mean, greenhouses have a lot of room, and so <laughs> they're very happy to put in a few flats for you, then you don't have to worry about starting from seed. That's a good idea. Anything that goes in the ground in like April, early May will probably work. Who knew you knew okay. about that too? Very good. Thank, Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> Thank you. Thank good, you for And good calling. luck with the two hours of sun. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. Take care. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, call us at 1-855-4-BOWTIE. That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Julie Martin calling. I keep reading about the merits of coconut oil, and I'm conflicted about using it because of the saturated fat content and also the flavor. So I'm wondering what you think about using coconut oil. You mean just as a regular everyday oil? As a regular everyday oil for cooking. I've heard it's good with um, higher heat instead of olive oil. Oh, is that why you don't want to use olive oil is because of the heat? For the most part, yes. 
Well, actually, I just learned that if you buy light olive oil that's processed, it's one of the oils that can get to the highest temperature before smoking. It goes up to like 450, whereas olive oil, regular olive oil is like 370 or 80. So a light processed olive oil will take the heat. I would not recommend coconut oil for everyday cooking. I use just, you know, basic canola oil, safflower oil is fine. Grapeseed oil is is used in the Middle East a lot, uh, which I love. The thing about coconut oils, there's two kinds. There's the refined kind, which really doesn't Mm -hmm. have much flavor. I mean, it's very neutral, but the trouble is that if it did have any health benefits, and the jury is still out about really whether coconut oil is good or not for you. Right. So you're not going to get that from the refined oil. And if you use the unrefined oil, which has more flavor and, you know, might be good for you, then mm-hmm. you're going to get a heavy coconut taste. And that just, I mean, for me, let's say I'm doing, okay, I'm going to be French here, Chris. I'm doing steak au poivre. I just don't want coconut in there. You know, that just seems weird to me. Flavoring, it really adds something yeah. to every dish I found. But, you know, I actually do cook with olive oil, and I even do sear steaks in it. I just really? tr- try and I never let it get that hot. You know, if you ever okay. see your oil smoking, that's uh-huh. bad news. And it will let you know, you know, if you let it keep smoking, it could catch fire. But even if it begins okay. to smoke, that means it's denatured and you should get rid of it and start over. So I never let okay. my olive oil get that hot, but I still use it okay. to saute. Okay. So I guess you don't do much stir okay. fry because... <laughs> well, no, if I did do stir fry, I'd use grapeseed or yeah. peanut oil or safflower okay. or sunflower. They get that pretty hot. Yeah, yeah. No, no. That's what I would use Yeah, I, I, as a I, neutral oil. Yeah, I would say coconut okay. oil would not be high on my list for every day. No, sometime. all sorts of people hate us right now because, you know, it's very hot. There's a lot of other I reasons know. too, Sarah. Very hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's, yeah. you know, it's like anything else. The uh, research does not back up the claims yet. Okay. And if and when it does, yeah. I'll get on that bandwagon too, but we're not there yet. Okay. I don't I don't like bandwagons. No, bandwagons, no. no. <laughs> okay, any Rachel, I, I hope, I hope we gave you some good ideas. Thank you. You did. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with David Leet. He's the famed food blogger and also author of Notes on a Banana, a memoir of food, love, and manic depression. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to David Leet. He's creator of the award-winning blog, Leet's Culinaria, 
also author of Notes on a Banana, a memoir of food, love, and manic depression. David inserts his love of food and cooking into the everyday struggles of the human condition, and he creates a world of mixed metaphors and compelling juxtapositions that really transcend the notion of food writing. Um, I was reviewing some of your blog posts. This one is, uh, yeasts are never depressed. Yeah. I turn to bread when I'm down. Single-cell microscopic fungi springing to life, not just surviving but thriving, give me hope. For each loaf, they have the equivalent of a frat house kegger gorging themselves and farting, belching, and gorging some more. I think how apt it is that yeast rhymes with feast, for that's what they do. That's their sole job, to feast. Uh, you're, you're a heck of a writer. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I, I enjoy that. Most people, food writing is, is using adjectives, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. typical. You think it's something quite different. So for you, what is what is food writing? Assuming you call what you do food writing, maybe it's just writing. Well, you know, it's it's that's an interesting question because I've started asking myself, am I a food writer or a writer who writes about food and other things now? Uh, for me, relying too heavily upon adjectives, if we want to be kind of technical and writerly here, is never really worked for me. I was always very interested in the verb of the sentence. What is the action that was taking place? And that's sort of a microcosm of what I'm interested in when it comes to writing about food. What action is taking place while you're eating or while you're at the table or while you're shopping or while you're cooking? What's happening? What alchemy is taking place? And if I can't find that alchemy, if I can't find that action in what's taking place, if I can't find what's transformative about it, I, I don't I don't have a story in my mind. So I when I first began my career, I was doing things like, oh, the best French butters and um, comparing American butters and French butters and, and articles like that. And they didn't have any soul for me because I didn't see the action. I didn't see the alchemy. I didn't see the story. So when I, I look at food writing now, I always ask myself, what is the story and what is the action? It's funny. I ask that question every day. <laughs> so for, for you, what is mm-hmm. a story? Is a story where there's uh, a situation, mm-hmm. there's action, and then it resolves itself in some way? Is that a story or what's a story? It can be anything. It can be uh, someone who um, didn't like a particular kind of food and through some experience, let's say uh, like through funeral food, Let's say they hate a particular kind of dish, but because of the connection with the person and there's an emotional aspect to it, they're eating this particular food and it takes on a new meaning, a new dimension. And then suddenly, not that, you know, it's a deus ex machina and, and they are a proponent of that particular food, but they have a greater appreciation for it. That could be, let's say, one story. Um, or it's uh, basically coming to know yourself more through what you cook. I know that when I was writing notes on a banana, a memoir of food, love, and manic depression, when I was many times at the stove and being very depressed, which is why I wrote that piece about yeast, uh, never being depressed, I knew that if whatever I was making would start with butter, I would somehow feel better. And I don't know why, but the idea of starting with butter made me feel somewhat secure and brought back a lot of wonderful memories. And so there's that transformative element, that story element of, of, of feeling one state, and because of the act of cooking or the act of just dealing with food and working with food and eating that food, feeling a different state when you were done. And that may just be temporary. It may just last an afternoon. It may go right back to what you were feeling before. But there's that moment in time that's bracketed or 
is set off by parentheses, and that is what I'm really interested in. So those are those are some of those stories that 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 interest me and, and that go from one state to another. You are someone who doesn't shy from the personal, no. uh, from the difficult in particular, which makes me like you because everyone wants to be funny and and, and talk about food and and, and laugh. Um, mm-hmm. But but you're a serious guy. So could you talk yeah. to me about being a serious guy ostensibly in the world of food? Well, I think my approach to food, I, I, I don't like all the fetishizing that's happening with food and has been happening for food for quite a while. Food is food and it's there for many reasons. It, it nourishes us and it keeps us alive and sustains us. But when it starts getting off into this fetish and this this whole other world, um, this food porn aspect of it, I really have a hard time because to me, it's it's what happens around that dinner table. This took me a long time to learn. Actually, I learned it through my partner, Alan, because when we met, he was a diner and I was an eater. All I cared about was shoveling food in my mouth. He was a diner. He could eat anything as long as we sat around the table and talked. And when we were done, pushed our chairs away and continued talking. And I learned, it took a long time, that it's what happens around that table, around that food, around that cutting board, that is really almost as more important than what's on that cutting board or on those plates. And so when I started looking at food that way, I realized that food is a currency. It, it, it's what we trade back and forth. Um, it's how we hear some family stories. It's how we hear stories about friends. What's the first thing when someone's sad, depressed, upset, you hear someone had died, let's get a cu- cup of coffee and talk. Right. Let's go get a bite to eat and talk. It's the first thing we do is turn to food and drink in order to connect. Hence food at memorial services and wakes. Exactly. And, you know. Because in the end, recipes are just a commodity. Especially with the internet now, they're quickly exchanged, interchanged, in, you know, intercepted. And all that, it's not its not what they once were because on the internet, especially for me in the online world, everyone's yanking recipes out of context. So we try to give context, number one, of where it came from and how we're using it and who the author is and why the author came to this particular point in time with this particular recipe. So the more I understand with that, I think the more interesting it is because I'm I'm not like this great food expert. A lot of people say, oh, you're like this wonderful food expert. You're a chef. You're an expert. No, I'm a guy who likes food. I'm a guy who likes communicating. I think if anything, I'm a communicator. And food is one way in which I communicate. When food was local and, Mm -hmm. you know, you did have the olive trees in the backyard and then the guy came in October and made uh, eau de vie or something out of the leftover fruit, you know, it was all – it was what you had. It was what you had to work with. It was it was very much a part of your life. Can you have that same relationship with food? It just doesn't matter because you're getting it from all over. That it it doesn't have meaning anymore. Or can you can you take anything and put meaning into it? I think you can you can find meaning in things. But I think if you if you've never experienced that kind of meaning or that kind of very close connection to food, you don't miss it. I grew up in a family where my father grew the grapes in the backyard that became the wine that was then used in the sausage that my aunt made, along with the masa de pimenta, which is a pepper paste that my father also made. And then that sausage that she made and smoked was then used in our foods and our stews and our soups. 
So I witnessed all of this happening growing up, and my aunt, I think, just finished her last batch of smoked sausage at 80-something years old. I think for those people who haven't had that, I, I don't know. I don't know if if you grew up kind of disconnected from that heritage element of it, if if you can insert it. It's not like, you know, insert here, Portuguese heritage, insert here, Italian heritage. But once you have that curiosity about food, I think that that will lead you on more and more. I mean, you look at your career. I mean, your, your career has led you from one thing to the next to the next in your career. You've always been curious. So I think everyone can learn and connect. Um, they may not have it in their, their heritage, but I think they certainly can to some degree connect. I'm going to change topics and, and, mm-hmm. and go uh, gossipy on you. you. You worked at Windows on the World uh, as a waiter. I did. And uh, there was a little story about going home and making an eclair. Um, which <laughs> yes. I just, I'm sorry, you, you're going to have to tell that story. Sure. Um, it was Alan Lewis who was the right-hand man to um, Joe Baum, who was uh, one of the owners of one of the guys who created Windows on the World as well as so many other of the classic, wonderful, huge restaurants in, in New York. And Alan Lewis was this, he has passed since, but he has, he was one, <laughs> he was the most, oh my God, uh, disgruntled men I've ever met in my life. Okay. And we were in the hors d'oeuvre part of Windows on the World, which faced south and east, and Windows itself proper was north and east. And he would have lunch at uh, the top tier. Uh, everything is tiered, so therefore you could look out. So no one's head was getting in your way and you had these unobstructed views. And he would come in and he would sit there in the corner and he would order whatever it was. And no one liked waiting on him. It was my turn and I had never waited on him. And he knew he instantly just been looking at my hand without looking up that I was new. And for whatever reason, took an interest in me and asked me what I did outside of um, Windows on the World. And I knew that he tried to trip up waiters all the time because he wants them all, everyone to be fanatically, he wanted everyone to be fanatically devoted to what they were doing. So I very smartly sidelined my acting career, which wasn't hard because there wasn't a lot of acting going on at that point. And um, I said, I like to bake. And he says, would you like to bake? And, and I said, well, I bake eclairs. And he says, bring me in one. And I said, great. So then I'd wake up every day and I would do the batter and I would do six or nine eclairs and I would watch them rise. I would, I would do the custard. I would do the chocolate. And I would bring all the elements to the restaurant hoping it, today was going to be the day he was going to come in. And then finally he was there and I rushed into the kitchen. I assembled it and I put it down in front of him and he goes, what's this? <laughs> and I said, oh, that's the, that's the eclair I told you I make. And he goes, what? And I was right. so humiliated. I said, I told you I bake eclairs and you wanted to taste one. And he goes, oh. And then he took a bite and then he just grunted and he put it down. <laughs> and I was so, so angry that I got a grunt out of this man. After all I'd been doing for almost a month, I believe, going back and forth and doing this every morning, getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning to be there in time. And um, then I went back to clear up his table. He'd eaten the whole thing. This man never ate anything. He ate like a bird. But he'd eaten the entire eclair. There you go. And to me, that was the greatest compliment. Um, last thing. Was there just some moment with you that was sort of the turning point where you figured out you were going to end up where you are now or something that led you here? There was that, that Proustian moment. And it was when I was still rather thin, 
my partner and I had been together about a year, and he said, I'm going to bake a cake. And I'm like, knock yourself out. I'm making a pineapple upside down cake. And I said, knock yourself out. I was trying to study because I was leaving advertising to go and become a therapist. And so I was uh, studying my psychology of personal adjustment textbook. <laughs> and he's baking this and, and he's, he's stirring this, this batter. And he says, you want to lick the bowl? And he kept on this, this patter through the whole thing of what he was doing. And, and I'm like, I'm trying to study. And he wasn't letting me study. And so finally I just gave up. And he said, do you want to lick the bowl? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I licked the bowl. And it really was that moment that Proust talks about. I was hurtled back to my childhood because the, the smell of that batter and the taste of that batter and even the texture, how it would drip down the bowl. And it, it, it was so extraordinarily familiar to me, yet I didn't know why. I, I didn't, I had no recollection, but I knew my face had been stuck in a bowl like that when I was young. And so I called my mother and I said, Ma, did you ever bake? And she's like, come on, banana, you know I never baked. And I said, what about Dina, which was my godmother? And he goes, no, she made pudding. And I said, what about Vavo? And Vavo was Portuguese for grandmother. And she said, well, yeah, she used to bake. She used to bake all the time. Don't you remember? She said, she used to pull the chair up to the stove and she'd put your grandfather's shirt on you backwards and you would bake with her and cook with her. And I had forgotten that entirely. And suddenly I realized that I had, I had, I, I had disenfranchised myself. I, I had ethnically cleansed myself from my family. I didn't want to be Portuguese. I wanted nothing to do with Portuguese food. But it hurtled me back to that point and made me realize that there was so much more about my childhood that I had forgotten when it came to food. And so I very quickly elbowed my partner out of the way in the kitchen and I began baking. And I thought, I want to write something that's of mine. And I came up with this idea of writing about my grandmother and Portuguese cuisine. And I realized that certain dishes disappeared from our table. And so I came up with this idea of videotaping my mother, talking about dishes and, and cooking with my mother. Cause, but it was while doing that, she started talking about the family and our family history. And so that became my first article. It was called Lights, Camera, Recipes. And that was in the Chicago Sun-Times. And I did four more articles for them. And that just cocked my life in a whole different, whole different direction, that, that taste of that cake batter. And I really have to say that I owe my food writing career to my partner. You actually had that moment. <laughs> I truly had that moment. It, it, it's, it's, it's so cliched, but I, I had that moment. I didn't think it actually was possible to have a moment like that. That was David Lead, author of the new book, Notes on a Banana, a memoir of food, love, and manic depression. The problem with much food writing is that food writers think their job is to sell the food. They use a sack full of juicy adjectives and rhapsodic verbs to amp up enthusiasm for the dish at hand. David Leet, however, thinks that food writing is just writing, and as such, the topic of food is an entry point into deeper themes. Of course, the best food writers are simply writers who have something to say about life, not just about the main course. And that's not a stretch, since food is essential to life. And that sounds pretty serious to me. Right now, it's time to talk to regular guest Dr. Aaron Carroll. Carroll is a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Aaron, how are you? I'm good. How are you? 
What is it that's keeping you up at night this week? Oh, I think, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a press conference where the director of the OMB made some comments about Meals on Wheels that were widely construed to mean that the program itself didn't have much evidence behind arguing that it worked. And that, that absolutely kept me up at night for a couple of nights. So you probably know something about it that they don't. Uh, well, it's amazing because this is a program which has been widely, widely studied. So just I'm assuming everybody knows what Meals on Wheels is, but if they don't, it's a program which basically just delivers food to seniors who can't get out to get food for themselves. Uh, it's, it exists in probably every state in the nation, but if not, it's, it's, it's pretty widely spread. Um, it's existed for some time, and it's one of those organizations that it, besides just making you feel good, it, it serves a need in that it's bringing food to seniors who can't go get it. But it's been widely studied. It's been studied so broadly that there have actually been a couple of systematic reviews, or as we've discussed before, studies of studies looking at how it actually impacts health. Can I ask a question? I mean, what do you need to study? It's not the efficacy of a drug to determine whether one's life expectancy goes up or down. You're delivering food to people who can't get it on their own. What is it you need to study? It's a great question. And, and so, I mean, you know, part of the argument is that, yes, I mean, it's just doing good, period. It's hard to imagine how it's not. But unfortunately, sort of the, the climate that we exist in today and for some time is that, you know, everything has to do wonderful, amazing things. It can't just be enough to bring seniors food. But they've actually looked at randomized controlled trials of how Meals on Wheels affects seniors. And, you know, there have been many studies which show that it actually can improve the quality of people's diet, increase their nutrient intake, reduce their food insecurity, and limit their nutritional risk. But they will go even further, and they, they can talk about the fact that it can lower loneliness scores, hmm. that it can keep people out of institutionalized care, so seniors are more likely be, to be able to live at home instead of having to live in nursing homes. And that can have a huge impact, um, not just on their quality of life and how they feel about themselves, but also the spending that we as a country do on things like Medicaid and welfare and the ability to help people live in nursing homes. So it can wind up saving states, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars over many years in terms of how much we even spend on Medicaid. Do you ever think late at night when you're not sleeping, <laughs> do you ever think <laughs> uh, the public policy is not based upon facts, but public policy is based on, oh, I don't know, politics? Yeah. And that's unfortunately how it sometimes feels in that, uh, you know, we can often say like, oh, well, this isn't a big important program or, you know, this is just something we can get rid of. Or it becomes a political football. It's just, oh, it's just something that people should be doing on their own and it's not the job of government. Um, but it's hard to argue that the program doesn't work. I suppose we could have a robust debate on whether it's cost effective, whether it's the best use of our money, uh, whether there are other things we could spend money on, even with respect to food, that would do more good for people. But I, but I would challenge people to find a program that does more good for the dollar, um, that, that winds up not only getting people food, but also having all of these side benefits and, and might wind up saving us money in the long run. That's why I think it was curious that of all the programs that someone could pick on, uh, this would be the one that's, that got everyone's attention. Just one thing. You mentioned loneliness index. And I remember a book called Recalled by Life back in the 1980s. 
and it was written by a doctor who was a proponent of Michio Kushi, who was a macrobiotic. Mm -hmm. Well, he had cancer, and he ended up eating dinner every night in a center, I believe in Philadelphia, that, that had this diet. But one of the conclusions was that it wasn't the food, it was the, the social context. So just as a follow-up question, do you find as a doctor that the, the loneliness index, that is the context in which sometimes cures happen, have to do with being in a social setting? I think it is. It's also the fact that for, for many seniors, this is a lot of their human contact, that right. they look forward to the person coming to deliver the meals, that it's someone who actually cares and is dedicated and is providing them with you know, social interaction. And too many seniors, especially those who are poor and or house-ridden for some reason, don't have that interaction. We cannot discount that factor. Uh, loneliness, the quality of life. There was a big story recently, I believe, in, in the Boston Globe or some paper talking about how loneliness, especially in middle age or older men, is who I think the study focused on, actually was potentially more harmful than many of the other things that we worry mm. about. Uh, that loneliness can have a huge impact on health. And Programs like this, besides delivering food, absolutely deliver that necessary human contact that people need, not only to have higher quality lives, but also to be healthier. Well, I'm with you. Keep the meals on wheels, right? I would. I don't understand. You know, people are talking about how it can still be floated with private donations, and that is likely the case. I don't think that even if the budget was cut and it hasn't happened yet, this would be the death knell for Meals on Wheels. But we should acknowledge that the program works, even if we want to talk about whether it's worth the money. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, You'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take some calls with my beloved co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready? I'm so ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Natalie. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Natalie. I'm so excited to be on the phone with you guys. Well, we'll, we'll fix that. <laughs> How can we help you? So I just recently graduated from college, and so I'm just starting off with cooking and learning how you know flavors go together and what to make for myself during the week. And I was just wondering what advice you guys had. We'll try to make this less than half an hour, but uh, <laughs> my, my, I'll have some very simple advice. Yes. Start with 10 recipes you like that represent, you know, a pasta recipe, a braise, a, a grilled recipe, a soup, something. Find 10 recipes you like 
and just keep making them until you can make them without looking at the recipe and then expand to 15 or 20 recipes. If you know 20 recipes inside and out and they're across a range of different cooking techniques, you'll know more than 98% of most home cooks. And now Sarah's going to say the opposite. No, no, no. Actually, when people ask me how do I learn how to cook, what I basically say to them is just cook because you can teach yourself a ton. Obviously, you don't want to get, say, a complicated cookbook with 500 steps. So you want to find a cookbook that you trust. Some cookbooks have how long it takes to make a recipe, and you might want to start with one that has that kind of timing so you're not doing three-hour recipes because you'll get bogged down. Katie Workman, who did a cookbook Mm -hmm. for her family and cooking with her kids. And obviously, you're not a kid or cooking for kids, but I think that would be a good place to start because they're fairly simple and they're well-balanced. I'm going to argue with you. Okay. I think you should make a recipe that really excites you. And even if it's a little few more steps, a little more complicated, if you just get thrilled by making that recipe and, and serving it, what kind of recipes do you like to cook? Is there a style? Is there a particular, you know, region well, of the world or what? Here's the thing. I have celiacs, so I can't make bread. So that's why I've kind of taken it upon myself to really know how to make stuff for myself because it's just safer right. for me to eat that way. So a lot of like Mediterranean or, you know, things that just aren't going to include any sort of bread naturally. Well, I have two cookbooks besides my co-host, Cooking 101. Deborah Madison just came out with a book called In My Kitchen, which has mm-hmm. very simple recipes and is... Probably mostly vegetable. All vegetables. And then Every Grain of Rice by Fuchsia Dunlop, which came out a few years ago. Very similar, very simple recipes. Those two books I would suggest you get. Okay. But I, I just find if, you, if you're really excited about the food, you know, I've been cooking for a long time and we just started Milk Street and for the first time in years, I'm really excited about food again. It's fun. It's interesting. So mm-hmm. you just got to figure out a book that has really interesting recipes, but stick to five or 10 of them. And then when you get those mastered, move on. A couple other quick things. Use a lot of heat and your skillet. <laughs> Nobody uses enough okay. heat and use enough salt. Oh, yeah. Salt, <laughs> salt is hands down the most important yeah. ingredient in Please cooking. salt your food. But anyway, it sounds like you have a lot of fun ahead of you. I do. I'm excited about it. Yay. Give it a shot. Let us know. Okay. Thanks, Natalie. I will. Yeah. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you. Pleasure. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Julia. Hi, Julia. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Louisville, Kentucky. I had called in earlier in regards to a question that one of your viewers had about vinegar. She said raspberry and passion fruit, I think. And she didn't know what to do with this plethora of vinegar that she had left over. And she was asking your advice because she said she was sick to death of making salads. Maybe she could use her vinegar in some iced teas, especially Hmm. some fruitier iced teas. Nice idea. In lieu of sugar. It's actually really delicious. Okay, that's a very good idea. I think that person had been given a bunch of flavored vinegars. I like that idea. Because, I mean, you put lemon in iced tea. Why not put vinegar? It sweetened it up really well uh, without having to add the sugar. And you could certainly turn it into a cocktail. Can I ask a question, though? I've traveled the South many times and really, really love the South and the food. When I ordered iced tea, it is kind of sweet, though. What is it with sugar... Very, very sweet iced tea, which I know is a tradition. Why is it so sweet, or is that not true anymore? Um, <laughs> I think it's a kind of akin to using hot sauce or something like that. Uh, if you 
sort of build up your tolerance after a while. You become immune to that level, and you've got to bump it up again, and then you've got to bump it up again, and then you've got to, you know, so uh, that's probably why it's so sweet is because people are sort of immune to the level of sugar in it. That sounds terrible. So you have to um, go into training, in other words. Some northerner, Yankee like me, just isn't in training, right, for the... Oh, yeah, I went to graduate school in Boston. If you order a sweet tea there, they look at you like you have three heads. Right. Exactly. Well, on the other side, though, you know, in the north, we put sugar in our cornbread, which is a huge mistake. So it goes both ways. (laughs) I mean, there's a barbecue place in Boston that used to be run by a friend of mine, and the cornbread... It was cake. Oh. It was awful. The South knows a great deal about cornbread that the North clearly does not. <laughs> I, I guess we're even. Well, anyway, I like that suggestion. Yeah, I'm I think it's take good. take it up this summer. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. <laughs> no worries. Thank, Thank you so Take much. care. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, call us at one 855 That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Deanne from Los Altos, California. How are you? I'm terrific. How are you? I'm good. How can we help you? I have kind of a small question. Okay. I've been making candy ginger with a recipe that calls for boiling the sliced ginger in water for 10 minutes, and then you throw that out, and then you boil it again with fresh water, and then you finally cook it in the sugar in the water. And I would love to know why this extra boiling step or two is necessary, I and mean, could you do it without pre-boiling it? The reason they do it many times is simply to reduce the strength of the, the ginger, the heat. Really? Yeah. yeah. So you could do it one time. I think Alton Brown actually has a recipe for that, but you could do it. Do you it. have to do it at all? Yes. You also have to tenderize it before yeah. you get that sugar in there. So oh. you can do it once, but uh, if you do it two or three times, you're just going to mellow it out. That's all. I like candy ginger as a snack. I don't know if I would like it if it was super assertive. But uh, oh, that's really? why. It's up to you. You should just try it once and see if it makes, you know, a difference. Well, I actually did try another recipe of it once that was just cooking it without pre-boiling at all. And I thought it was fine, but I just wondered if there was some reason. Oh, well, hey, reason. maybe you just told us something we didn't know. <laughs> I would have thought you had to, to tenderize it. It's like, have you ever made candied orange rind or oh, yeah. candy? Because they have you boil that and dump it off and boil it and dump it off. And yeah, and I thought and... that was more because of the bitterness, It maybe? is. It is. So um, I didn't know if ginger had Well, that ginger's thing. got a little bitterness, too. Yeah, but it's also got heat. Yeah, you does. know, sometimes when I'm not thinking and I'm eating food and it seems real spicy and I don't know where, you know, it, it's not obviously Indian or something else, it turns out that it's ginger because it can have a lot of heat. Right. I would do whatever works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's great. That's what I wanted to know. Yes. Wait, I just want to comment on, <laughs> Sarah, you trained... As a French chef, yes. you cooked in French restaurants, yes. and that's the antithesis of the French way of cooking, no, no, which no, no, is wait. do whatever you like. No, no, that's but not, you know what? That's I've not learned true. This, I've learned this over the years. Oh, you've mellowed. Oh, well, yes, and also talking to home cooks, and I have so much respect <laughs> for home cooks because just like restaurant chefs, they make the same recipe over that's and true. over and over again, and they hone it, and you cannot argue with that kind of experience. So when you were young, you were like a piece of ginger boiled once, but now you've been boiled many times? <laughs> yeah. You've mellowed. Right, right. You're not as spicy. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a few things, like if you don't peel your asparagus, it's like nails on the blackboard. But um, I'm open to other suggestions, yes. Good for you. We're growing old and learning. Yes. Anyway, thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. This week's Mill Street Basic is grading your veggies. You know, it takes skill and practice to produce a good dice. 
Or you can cheat and do what people do in Spain and India. They use a box grater. The large holes of a box grater can reduce onions and shallots to a fine pulp that cook down in just minutes. By the way, you can use a box grater to reduce fresh tomatoes to a pulp as well. Simply have and grate the cut side. The skin will stay behind and give you something to hold on to. This pulp, by the way, makes a quick sauce with sauteed garlic, oil, and red pepper flakes. Or you can use the fresh grated pulp as in addition to sauces, soups, and braises. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk with journalist Lenny Crawl. Back in 1993, it was determined that some cows produce A1 milk. That's the type sold in grocery stores today. But there's also A2 milk. This is a lactose-free milk produced by different breeds, such as Jerseys and Guernseys. Now, A2 milk has come to America from Australia. And in a piece in The Atlantic, Crawl asked the question, is A2 the new cure for lactose intolerance? So before we get into all of this, uh, what is lactose intolerance? Lactose intolerance is actually an inability to digest the sugars that are in milk. The premise of your piece is that some milk has A1 proteins and other types of milk from different types of cows have A2 proteins. So Holsteins, I grew up on a dairy farm with Holsteins, produce A1 proteins, and you say there's a potentially a, a health risk or health problem associated with A1 proteins. Yes. So basically, if I can get a little in the weeds for a second with the science, sure. milk is made of milk solids and milk liquids, and milk solids are made up of proteins, and the most prevalent protein in milk is beta-casein. And that is made up of a string of amino acids. There's 209 of them. And at the 67th position in the amino acid chain, there has always been proline historically. And that would be A2 cows have proline there. But somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 10,000 years ago, histidine came to predominate at that position in the amino acid chain, which some people speculate was because Holsteins were more popular because they had higher milk output, which is maybe why they're found on so many dairy farms across the United States. So let's go slightly deeper in the weeds. What is an amino acid chain and how can one link in that chain, if it's something different, substantially change, uh, let's say, the human body's ability to digest it? So the researchers that have been looking into this, and it's still fairly new research, it started in the early 90s, they think that when the histidine that's in the A1 type of milk hits the large intestine, it causes the production of something called beta-casomorphine 7, or BCM7, and that causes inflammatory compounds, or their research shows that that causes all sorts of inflammatory things to happen in the human body, which can cause asthma, eczema, and they've even speculated it could cause autism or schizophrenia as well. Uh, let's go back to cows for a second. So are there breeds that specifically only produce A2, Guernsey, Jersey? Is that how it works? Yes. Um, Guernsey and Jersey and Normand, which if you're in a state that doesn't have A2 milk yet and you're interested to try this out, you can search for cheeses or dairy that specify which breed they use because it's, it's not 100%, but like 80% of Guernseys are A2 producing. And it is possible to sort of um, tease out, like, for instance, right now they're working on developing a Holstein that still is a high milk producer, can still be used by factory farms, but that only produces A2. 
so they can sort of modify the genetics to make something like that happen. You know, it's so interesting. I, I live part-time, <clears throat> at least when I'm in Vermont, up the road from a small dairy farm, 300 head. And when I was a kid, the cows would be out to pasture, right, 22 hours a day. They'd come in for milking early in the morning and the afternoon. But I, I think most herds these days don't graze, right? I mean, they're pretty much kept in, in corrals, and, and the milking goes on 24 hours a day. But overall, in your research, did you come to any conclusions about the American dairy industry just as an industry and the quality of the product they're producing? I think that the American dairy industry has been struggling for the past few decades. The um, milk consumption has gone down ever since I think the late 70s is when soy milk was introduced in a broad commercial way in the U.S. And they are definitely maligned for a lot of things. You know, there was fast food nation and there was factory farming and they get a bad rap, but there are definitely a lot of really wonderful farms in the U.S. And if you drive across the U.S., you can't go a half hour without seeing cows on pretty much any interstate. And it's it's hard to talk about something like this without thinking about how it would affect the livelihood of so, so many Americans. So we definitely have to be careful making these sorts of claims. So this there's a company called A2 Milk Company. They decided to go out and produce milk from cows that produce A2, not A1, which they claim would be easier for people to digest. So where do you come out on this, whether these studies prove that A2 is is better for people than A1, or you're not sure? Um, I personally am not sure, and I felt like as a journalist I should try to stay impartial on that so that the piece didn't come off leaning any certain way. I think that the claims about things like autism and schizophrenia are pretty extreme. And if those things turned out to be true, the dairy lobbyists and dairy farmers would end up having a crazy obligation to change everything about how they do things. So what I came away from this thinking is just basically, if you have stomach issues that you get when you drink milk, it, it can't really hurt to try this milk out and see if what that does for you. I don't know if I'm ready to believe that drinking only A2 milk will mean that we reduce incidence of heart disease and other issues that have been tied to A1 milk. But I think that it can't hurt anything more than really your wallet, say, to to try the A2 thing out and see how it affects your stomach problems. Well, Lee, thank you. Fascinating article in The Atlantic about A1 milk versus A2 milk, which is now already in California and may be coming to a dairy near you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I grew up drinking milk right out of the stainless steel bucket that was brought in from the barn after the early morning milking. I remember that it was warm, it was frothy, and uh, also had the occasional struggling fly on top, spinning around trying to get free. Well, today we drink pasteurized A1 milk devoid of bacteria into my palate flavor. A1 or A2, the occasional fly in our milk, might actually be a good thing. We've learned the hard way that safe food is not always wholesome food. That's it for this week. You can listen to Milk Street Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also on Spotify and at our own site, MilkStreetRadio.com. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. 
Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.